APM. This is the American Radio Works podcast. I'm Stephen Smith. What does research say about how students learn best? A group of deans from schools of education around the country has united to make sure future teachers are armed with information about what works in the classroom as they begin their careers. This group is called Deans for Impact, and last fall it released a document called The Science of Learning. The document is a guidebook for teachers, and it's meant to provoke discussion of the following six questions. How do students understand new ideas? How do students learn and retain new information? How do they solve problems? How does learning transfer to new situations in or outside of the classroom? What motivates children to learn? And finally, what are the common misconceptions about how students think and learn? American Radio Works senior correspondent Emily Hanford recently spoke with Benjamin Riley. He's the founder and executive director of Deans for Impact. Emily started off by asking him to describe some of the misconceptions we all have about how students learn best. The most common misconception that we see perpetuated, and it's not just in the United States, but frankly around the world, is this notion that students have different learning styles. And anyone who's listening who has a child, or frankly reflecting on their own learning, um, may think that their child or themselves have sort of a style in which they prefer to learn. And by style we mean here like, oh, I'm a visual learner, I like seeing things. Or, oh, I'm an audio listener, I love listening to podcasts and the radio, and that's how I learn. Or and this is more common in education than I think the general public, the notion of being kinesthetic learners. Like we like to dance around and move and that's how like if we're getting information while we're doing that, we are more inclined to remember that. It's a completely plausible and intuitive concept. So I just, it makes a lot of sense why people think that. Scientists have studied it over and over and over again and have found that Almost without exception, there's no evidence that it actually leads to better learning. So it may be true that you think you learn visually versus audio, through audio ways, but when you actually present people information in their preferred style, you don't actually see any evidence that there's better retention of the information. In fact, sometimes you see that it's worse. So, you know, is that a harmless misconception? Well, possibly, but the reality is there's data, um, mostly international, where I think there are some uh, graduate students who are collecting it in the U.S. There's data suggesting that teachers believe this overwhelmingly. And so then they start to make instructional decisions based on that. They start to classify their students as visual or audio learners. They put them in those categories, and then they start delivering information to them, thinking that this is going to improve their learning. They might be right, but the science suggests probably not. And in fact, perhaps their attention would be better spent on other things that we do have some reason to believe align with how people learn. So that's one of those sort of misconceptions that you know appears innocuous, but may have subtle, subtly pernicious effects. Yeah, I would say a lot of people listening to this are really going to react to that one. I think it's really common belief in schools that people learn in different ways and you should, uh, you know, model your lessons or model assignments to help out kids to maximize the, the, the way they learn best. Well, it's certainly true, and I actually would um, add this caveat, that it's entirely appropriate to vary your lessons and to have different, quote-unquote, modalities of instructional delivery. So it's certainly not the case that you would say, and therefore, because learning styles don't exist, you know, never vary between visual presentation information or, you know, listening to something uh, on a tape or online. Um, I can't believe I just dated myself by saying tape. Um, (laughs) I say tape all the time. (laughs) But... um, 
Um, so, so it's so to to be clear, it's not that you know you never want to do that. It's that what you really want to do is have sort of in your mind a mental model of how children learn. If you're a teacher, that is, or frankly, if you're a parent, that mental model should hopefully be informed by our best understanding, our best scientific understanding of how learning takes place. And then if you use that as sort of the access around which you can innovate and make different decisions about how you want to try to educate your child, whether it's a student or your own child, that's the way in which you'll likely have the best outcomes and you'll likely see the transformation that you you do see um, in um, just about any school in this country when you've seen learning that's actually activated. Dan Willingham, the cognitive of scientists has sort of an elegant phrase around this, which is that every teacher, either implicitly or explicitly, has a theory of learning when they teach. So we're just trying to give the best scientific theory to future teachers and to people who are, care about education. You know, another one of the misconceptions you talk about is cognitive development does not progress via a fixed progression of age-related stages. And I would say that my experience as a reporter, a lot of teachers think that. A lot of teachers understand that cognitive development does not progress via a fixed progression of age-related stages. And a lot of them feel like the curriculum or the structures in schools kind of impose that. And so it's hard for them sometimes to get away from that. So talk to me a little bit more about the meaning of, of that misconception and how that should change teacher training or what happens in schools. What happens is... I mentioned how knowledge is cumulative and that our ability to make sense of new information really depends on what we already know. So what you'll see is that depending on how you test some kid um, or what information you're asking them to absorb, you can come out with radically different um, answers as to whether or not you know they are quote-unquote on grade level. So the example I sometimes give quickly when I'm doing presentations is that if you take your sort of standard fourth grade boy in the United States and and give them sort of content neutral things to read. And by content neutral, I mean simply something that's sort of randomly chosen that they haven't necessarily been exposed to. And you ask them to make sense of it. You know, they may have been taught a lot of quote unquote reading strategies to sort of decode what the main idea is or what is it the author's trying to say. And some will do it and some will understand and some won't. And you'll put them in sort of like a spectrum between on grade level, above grade level and below grade level. If you took something that was about, say, you know, what's happening to their favorite baseball team and made it just as rigorous in content, but it's filled now with things that they know, it's filled with names and facts and details about a thing that they really understand. I'm just assuming this kid likes baseball for the moment. All of a sudden, you'll find they're reading way above grade level. And the reason for that is, is that they're able to absorb the new facts that are put into that um, without having to tax their memory or their understanding looking at all the other facts that they don't know. So this is what we mean by being careful about thinking about developmental stages. It's really more appropriate to think, to think about, have the students mastered the things they need to know prior to presenting this new information? And that can vary really greatly. And I agree with you, teachers do feel bound sometimes by sort of, you know, scripted things that require them to move on before students are ready to move on. And that's a real issue. I think the other thing that American education um, often runs afoul of other cognitive principles is that we very rarely learn something the first time we're absorbed with it fully. Um, we need to come back to it. We need to return to it. And so I continue to try to make the sexiest word in education, the word that no one's ever heard of, called interleaving, which is a practice of like just... It's not, you know, it's, it's basic when you think about it. It's just got a kind of cool name about 
continually coming back to things that are important to learn so that it gets stored in long-term memory. So you don't just present concept X and then move on to concept Y and then move on to concept Z. You do a little bit of X and then a little bit of Y and then a little bit of Z and then a little bit of X and a little bit of Y and a little bit of Z. I think we struggle with that in the United States. I think there's a lot of opportunity for us to both make school more interesting for teachers and kids and make it um, more effective at learning. Another thing that's in your document is um, you know, that testing can really help learning, that this testing effect in retrieval practice. And I think that might be controversial for some who think we have too much testing in schools, but this, this idea that testing can be really helpful. But I think it's important to recognize certain kinds of testing or the conditions of testing. What's in the document about the importance of testing and how testing can really help kids learn? When we think about testing in the United States, we typically get, um, there's, a, there's a large number of people who get their hands ringing when they think about using tests to sort of measure a school's effectiveness or even their own students' effectiveness when they sort of have this high pressure environment. But the reality is that cognitive scientists have studied this and they have looked into it. And what they found is you are much more likely to remember information that you know is going to be on the test. And so um, I would like to... And I would add, I think the process of taking the test can help you, helps you learn the information. Exactly. Yes? Exactly. Testing mm-hmm. itself is a learning strategy, and it turns out a highly effective one. And I know some people will bristle when they hear that, but the evidence is pretty clear on that. Now, the, the question is, is there a way to sort of find a happy medium between sort of the tests that get people sort of concerned and sort of keep those at an appropriate level and not so overwhelming that um, either parents or kids or teachers are stressed out. You don't want the system to sort of become so allergic to testing that all of a sudden all tests are thrown out, while at the same time acknowledging that good educating requires testing. I'll say it again, good educating requires testing. And so we need to have an education system that doesn't run away from that concept, that doesn't blanch at that concept, but that instead looks at the science around that and says, actually, having sort of low stakes or sort of self-tested processes and what they sometimes call in education world formative assessment, the sort of test you're using to themselves guide instruction, building those um, into our system to greater degree and having teachers really be like the experts about how to do that, um, I think has tremendous potential for improving learning outcomes. Okay, so let's get back to the question of deans for impact and improving teacher preparation. So we've talked about this document that outlines the science of learning. I actually sent out a tweet about this document um, after I first learned about it, and I got a tweet back from a teacher, a former teacher, I think, and it said, wow, some good points, but also some assumptions that are just plain wrong, IMO, in my opinion. And I thought that was such an interesting tweet, because it's the problem right there, right, is that we all, as you said earlier, all teachers have a mental model of how learning works, and the question is, how do you change that model? You may believe very strongly in the idea of learning styles, and you may think, you may you may have lots of evidence from your classroom that it worked, that thinking about kids and their learning styles and making assignments based on that that was working in your classroom. And so hearing the scientific evidence doesn't necessarily change your mind. You can still say, well, that's interesting, but in my opinion, I disagree. I want to be really clear about this. The science of learning, it's not a magic potion. 
it's not a cure-all. It doesn't provide the answers to everything. And depending on how that teacher was interpreting it, um, it is going to be the case, and I'm not sure what percentage of decisions I'd put in this category, but there are going to be times when you are going to make a decision that a teacher will make a decision that, um, based purely on what the cognitive scientists say, um, may not align with scientific principles. That's perfectly fine. And in fact, in many circumstances, it's the right decision because the, the science of learning is about what's happening in our head. Learning takes place typically in a social environment with so many factors going on. And so teachers are going to have to make decisions sometimes where the need for classroom management and sort of keeping the time on task or whatever else they may need to do, that's going to become the paramount concern. And so they may say, you know what, even though this may sort of tax working memory or you know active memory more than I'd like it to, we just need to do that because that's what we need to do for X, Y, or Z reasons. And that's perfectly appropriate. The key is to know when you're doing that, when you're overriding that, and then try to get back to and recur to a place where you're making fewer and fewer of those decisions when you don't have to do that. Um, so I, I, it's, it's important to put this science in the, in the proper perspective of around that. The last thing I'll say too is that there's a reason why Deans for Impact is aimed predominantly at sort of the pre-service preparation period, the time when you're training teachers before they've entered the field. That's because we're hoping that those future educators have less entrenched beliefs and less sort of, you know, natural resistant to ideas that they may have come to hold very deeply because it is very hard to get people to change their mind. That's another cognitive principle. So, okay, so you have this this document that you've put out. So are you saying by this document this is not being taught right now in schools of education and it needs to be, it should be? To the extent this is being taught at all, it's one being thrown into sort of a mishmash of theory about how learning takes place, and there isn't any consensus that these theories, the scientific theories, are privileged compared to sort of philosophic theories about how people learn. A lot of teachers get exposed to a lot of sort of psychologists who had a bunch of opinions about how learning takes place. Um, who didn't necessarily collect any evidence or empirical data to back up those opinions. How are you going to know whether Deans for Impact is successful? Well, from an organization standpoint, um, we will be successful if over time more and more leaders in the field, and I'm talking about both leaders of colleges of education, um, but also those throughout the entire education community, um, start to align around the principles and the vision that we have, and start to we start to work in concert toward that. And if that starts to happen, um, I am naively but radically convinced that we will start to see a change in the tenor and the um, happiness that we see in our education system, and we will start to see international visitors arriving in the United States saying, wow, what, it just, what, what is it that's happened here in the United States to make the education system improve so rapidly? That'll be our metric for success. That was Benjamin Riley, the founder and executive director of Deans for Impact, a group of education school deans from around the United States. He spoke with American Radio Works' Emily Hanford. You can find a link to the Science of Learning publication at our website, AmericanRadioWorks.org. While you're there, find more podcasts about issues in higher ed and K-12 education and browse the archive of more than 100 documentary projects. We'd also love to hear what this podcast made you think about and whether you'll share it with friends or colleagues. Did it change your ideas about the science of learning? Let us know at AmericanRadioWorks.org. Click on the About page and then scroll down to Share Your Impact Story. 
We are on Facebook at American.RadioWorks and on Twitter at AM Radio Works. Support for American Radio Works comes from Lumina Foundation, the Spencer Foundation, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Stephen Smith. Thanks for listening. This is APM.